Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. This is the word of our Lord. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, it is a joy. It does make us chuckle to see how wise our Savior is, how indwelt by the Spirit He is, how, how much He knows of the Word and of Your great plan for salvation because He's been there since forever with You. So Lord, as we look to this passage today, would you help us to understand it? Would you help us to understand the the irony of the question and the impact of the question and, and what it means for us as well? Give us understanding, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the questions that we as a church have been asking together as we have worked our way through through Matthew's gospel is this who is Jesus? question. It's certainly been the reason why we've seen that Matthew has written the book of Matthew. He wants to tell us who Jesus is, and so we've been asking that question, who is Jesus? And as we've made our way through the book, it's become clear that based on his life and based on his miracles and his teaching, that Jesus, this guy from Galilee, is the Messiah, He has fulfilled promise after promise after promise of who Messiah would be, and Matthew has left it undeniable for us. Well, today in our text, Jesus is going to press that question a little deeper, a little further. The question is not anymore, who is Jesus? We know he's Messiah now. The question is now, who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? What what are we to think of him? What are we to think of the Christ? Is he just a man? Is he a myth? Is he a teacher? Is he a prophet? Is he God? Is Jesus God? And if he is, how would we know? How would anyone there know that this man standing in front of them is, is the Son of God? Would it be something that he said to them? Would it be something that he would do? Well, in our text, Jesus asks the question, whose son is the Christ? And then he, and he follows it up with this, this difficult question from Psalm 110 that in every way, when you read Psalm 110, it, it points to the divinity of Christ, but then, but then Jesus doesn't answer his own questions. We, we, as the reader, are sitting here at the end of chapter 22, and we have this unresolved tension. So what we're going to do this morning 
is, is first of all, just to better understand Jesus' question. Because I think we read it and we realize that this is a bit of a zinger, but we need to know what, what the impact is. What's going on here that makes this such a memorable question? And, and by the end of the sermon, I hope you'll be able to see that he actually does answer the question, even though it looks like he doesn't. But he doesn't answer the question here. It's going to be in four days after this day that he answers the question and we get our final answer. So let's look at the text. And if you're new with us, all we do here is we go through the text verse by verse by verse and ask, what does it say? What does it mean? And then we're done. That's kind of how we do things here because this is God's word. He's the one who has the right to speak to us and he has opinions that are much more valuable than my own. So uh, look at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, remember, this question, this this comes in the same conversation as the Pharisees' question about the greatest law from our text last week. And that question, what is the greatest law, was a follow-up to the Sadducees' question that was asked on that same day. And that question was about the resurrection. And that question was a follow-up to the question that the Pharisees had previously asked about paying taxes. So Jesus has satisfactorily answered all three of these questions. And he could have just answered that last question about the law. He could see, look, these guys aren't going to be persuaded by anything I say. And he could have just walked away. But he didn't walk away. Jesus. After having been asked those three questions, he responds with a question of his own. And to understand what's going on in our text, we have to ask, well, why? Why why is he asking this question of them? Especially if he's not going to answer it in in the text. Well, there's something else that Jesus wants to accomplish here. He's not just trying to prove himself to be knowledgeable of the scriptures. He also needs to show these men, especially the teachers, that they don't know as much as they think they know. And that's especially important when it comes to what they think about the Christ and who he is. The issue at hand here throughout chapter 22 is not really, should we pay taxes? The issue is not what Jesus thinks about the end times, and it's not about the law. The issue, the real issue, is who the Christ is. Because all of this came up with this question that they asked, by what authority do you do these things? And all of that came after Jesus has entered the city and everyone's praising him as the son of David. When When they say he's the son of David, they're saying he's the Christ. That's important. Because as we've gone through Matthew's gospel, we've seen Jesus identified again and again and again as the son of David. Way back in Matthew chapter 9, we actually see it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, but the first time it becomes apparent in the storyline with, with the people, Matthew 9, chapter 27, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, the first instance of Jesus being called the son of David, we have these two blind men, they're the first to see that Jesus is the son of David, they they cry out to him. And then in Matthew chapter 12, the crowds 
hearing Jesus teach, they say, could this be the son of David? And then you keep going. Matthew chapter 15, a Canaanite woman. Remember, this is an enemy of God's people. A Canaanite woman identifies Jesus as the son of David. And then we get to chapter 20, right before Jesus goes into the city, right, at, right before he goes into Jerusalem, which is really just a few days ago on Matthew's calendar here. And it's, again, two blind men on the roadside crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. And then in chapter 21, like I said, Palm Sunday, Jesus enters the city, and the crowds are waving palm branches, singing Hosanna to the son of David. This is the issue. This is the issue with Jesus. He's welcoming, he's affirming people who call him the son of David. And everyone, especially the Pharisees, know that this means he is welcoming praise as the Christ. His followers believe he is the Christ. And this drives the Pharisees crazy. They can't stand it. Look, at, look, look again at the, that verse from chapter 21. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They really don't like it that, that these people who are supposed to be their, their pupils are calling Jesus this Galilean outsider, the son of David. Because what they're doing is calling him the Christ. And so what Jesus wants to do here is show them, look, you guys are upset that these people are calling me the Christ. You don't even understand biblically who the Christ is let alone whether I'm the Christ. If they, if they think that Jesus claiming to be the son of David is a big deal, just wait until they really understand what Jesus means by that. So that's why Jesus asked them this question, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And they say he's the, he's the Christ, David's son. The Christ is David's son. And they're right, because most of the Old Testament promises that point to the Messiah, say he would be David's descendant, David's son. The first place we see that is when God promises David that there would be a son, his son, who would rule on his throne forever. 2 Samuel verse, or chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So plain as day, right there. The promised king will come from David's body. He will be David's offspring, David's son. And then the prophets confirm this over and over and over again. We see this in Isaiah, Isaiah 16, verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David. That means from the family of David, from his tent, his family, David's son. One who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. That's a Messiah promise. Son of David. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, same thing. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for who? For David. A righteous branch, that means someone who comes from David's tree. A righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
Messiah is supposed to be David's son. He's supposed to come from David's family. Some of the prophets, when you read the minor prophets, they even call this promised king David. And they know that David's dead. They know he's gone. But the Messiah was supposed to be so closely identified with David because he is the promised son of David. And so this question that Jesus asks confirms two things for us. When Jesus asked this question in verse 42, he's, he is, first of all, claiming yet again to be the Christ, right? People worshiping Jesus as the son of David, that's, what's, that's the context of this. People are saying, this man, Jesus, is the son of David. Jesus welcomes their praise. And now Jesus wants to make sure everybody's on the same page. Pharisees, he says, in my own words, when people refer to someone as the Christ, what's another way of saying that? And you can almost see them grinding their teeth rolling their eyes and saying, son of David. And then, in a way, Jesus is saying, so when all those people just a couple days ago were calling me the son of David, they were calling me the Christ? And they're like, yes. Interesting. And in, I can just imagine, I don't know if this is what happened, but I can imagine Jesus' big, toothy smile just grinning at them. That's, that's part of the, 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 the irritation of this question. Jesus knows that they know that when people call him son of David, they mean he's the Christ. And he's getting everybody on the same page. All right, so it's established. People believe me to be the Christ. Well, the second thing that Jesus does for us with this question is, again, show that the Pharisees really don't know who the Christ is. And I don't think that this is just for us. I mean, not many of us today are looking to the Pharisees for guidance. We've, we've learned better, right? But, but remember, they're, they're standing in this giant courtyard. Put yourself there. Jesus is in the courtyard in front of the temple. The Pharisees, which is a big group, all the top theologians in the nation are there standing right in front of Jesus, and then the crowd is watching. There's, there's a huge crowd. When you read Mark and Luke, they, they point the crowd out to us. They're all, the, the Pharisees are circled up right in front of Jesus. The crowd is watching this interchange. And, and Jesus, remember what his goal is. He still aims to persuade people that he's the Christ. He's not trying to alienate everyone. His mission isn't win an argument. His mission is to win souls into his kingdom. But to do this, See what he has to do? He has to undermine the crowd's faith in the teaching of the Pharisees. Or think about if someone were to persuade you of a new teaching. Jesus isn't teaching a new teaching, but just work with me. If someone were to persuade you of a new teaching about Christianity, who would they have to first undermine? They would have to undermine the teaching of your pastors. They would have to undermine the teaching of, of Christians throughout history. And so Jesus is doing. They have, there's this tradition of teaching about who the Christ is, and they're wrong. And Jesus wants to show them they're wrong. And so he has to ask them a pointed question that shows the weakness of their argument. So he's confirming with his question he is the Christ, and he's shaking up the Pharisees. Especially their teaching with this interchange, with this challenge. And this is how he accomplishes that. 
that second part especially. He asked this baffling question, verse 43, if then, all right, he knew they were going to say the Christ is David's son. So he follows it up. If the Christ is David's son, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is from Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Before we break this down, I want, you, you might have noticed this. I want you to notice something again about Jesus' understanding of the scriptures. This is kind of an aside. Look at how he describes David's writing. How is it then that David, in the spirit, see that? What's Jesus saying? He's saying David is in the spirit when he writes scripture. When David writes one of the Psalms, he's writing it in the spirit. He's led along by the Holy Spirit. We saw a couple weeks ago that Jesus believes the scriptures to be God speaking. Do you remember that? Now he's saying that the way that works is the spirit speaks through the human who's writing. Psalm 110, we know to be written by David. Psalm 110, we know to be written by David, led along by the spirit. Don't miss that. A lot of times we think that our only proof text for God inspired the writing of scriptures is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. And that's true. And that's a really good text. But that is not our only text. We have lots. All throughout the Bible, the Bible itself reveals again and again and again, it is the very word of God, spoken by God through human authors. This is just another one of those verses. But there's something else I want you to see here. And this is really significant to what we believe as Christians. This passage, I don't know if you noticed, but it helps us to understand the Trinity. In fact, this, this entire passage is Trinitarian, with that Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's a very Trinitarian passage, and we'll get to that in a minute. But look at what Jesus is saying about the Holy Spirit. He's not a force. He's a person, a divine person. Let me show you how we get there. Matthew twenty-two thirty-one, 31, which is a few weeks ago, Jesus says the scriptures, and by scriptures there, he's talking about the book of Exodus. It says, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? The scriptures are spoken by God. Hold on to that. We know, we know that one now. And now in our passage, referring to Psalm 110, Jesus says, David wrote in the Spirit. And so our deduction from that is that the scriptures are written by a human, led along by the Spirit. Both of those statements are true. Scriptures are spoken by God. Scriptures are written by a human author who is writing in the Spirit. You see that equivalency there? When we put both of those truths side by side as equally true, then logically, do your, do your algebra here balance the equation? God is the Spirit. The Spirit is God. Spirit must be divine. This is one of those bits of truths that we as Christians hold on to when we try to grasp, which we'll never fully be able to, but when we try to grasp who God is. 
You see, there isn't a scripture, when you read the Bible, there is not a, a verse that outright says, God is one divine essence and three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. There isn't a verse that says that. The way that we as Christians throughout the ages have, have formulated that truth, in other words, the way that we get our understanding of the Trinity, is through taking all that Scripture says about who God is. Think, think of it this way. We put all of these truths in a jar. Okay, so we, we see the Spirit is God from, from Matthew chapter 22. We put that in a jar. We see that Jesus, the Son, is God through his resurrection. We put that in the jar. We know that the Father is God. We put that in the jar. And when we speak of God, we say all of these things are true. Does the Bible teach that the Spirit is God? Yes, all over the place. Does the Bible teach the Father is God? Yes. How about the Son? Yes. Are they all the same person? No, they're not. They're distinct. Okay, well, then they must be separate gods. No, they're all one God. Well, how does that work? Well, the Bible doesn't say how three distinct persons are one divine substance, but because the Bible teaches that each person is distinct, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And as we saw last week from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. That's how we get what we believe. The Trinity, I think we misunderstand it sometimes. The Trinity is not some logical, philosophical, enlightenment age argument. It's just a whole bunch of truths all in one jar. And we say all of these things in this jar, all of these Bible verses about who God is, they're all true. And they're not contradictory. Could God be more than the sum of all of those verses? Yes. In fact, he must be. He's infinite. He's incomprehensible. He must be more than a jar full of Bible verses. But he cannot be less. He cannot be less than what the Bible teaches about him. To believe less than what Scripture teaches about God is to deny God's revelation of himself to us. You cannot be a Christian, and I mean that in, 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 the, in the most firm sense. You cannot be a Christian and say to God, you are not who you say you are. I get to decide who you are. That is brazen, isn't it? That's why, even though it feels judgmental and we feel really judgy when we say it, that's why we say Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and the Mother God people are not Christians. They're false teachers. To deny what the Bible teaches about who God is is to form God in your own image. And that is a much greater, more damning heresy than I think we really understand. It's an insult to God who has graciously revealed himself to us. He didn't have to do that, but he has. And so we welcome all that he has revealed and we praise him for who he is, even though we cannot comprehend it. That's a bit of a diversion, I know, and it's not the point of this text, but I don't glorify God as Trinity as often as I should 
from God's word, and we don't get a lot of opportunity, opportunities to do that. And so I didn't want to miss that today. I want you to see here that Jesus believes that the Spirit is God. All right? And, and as we'll see, he also very heavily alludes to himself as God. The Christ is God. Both of those things are true. The text is referring to this truth with Jesus' question. And, and the, the question is, is drawn out of Psalm 110. So if you want to look in Psalm 110, we're going to get back to the text now. Not that we weren't there, but back to the point of the text. Psalm 110, back to page, 500, page 509 in your pew Bible. Let's take a few minutes to look at this psalm that Jesus is alluding to. The people Jesus is talking to would have had this memorized. All right, These Pharisees would have memorized all the psalms. These were their songs. They knew them by heart. And so as soon as Jesus gets a little bit of a, a blip from one of them, especially this one, this was their hope, after all. They would have known it. I would love to grow in my memorization of the Psalms. I think as a church, we would all be served in this way. But here's what David in the Spirit teaches us about the Messiah in Psalm 110. Look at verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. Yahweh, and, and, and when I say that, it's because in our Bible, you see the capital L-O-R-D, that is the way that our Bibles refer to the original text pointing to Yahweh, the, the Lord, the one true God. So, so God, the, the eternal God, the Lord, says to my Lord, and that one is not in all caps, Adonai, my Lord. My Lord here is Messiah. He's the promised one, the anointed king. David is saying that this anointed king is his Lord. And how do we know that he's talking about the anointed king? How do we know that he's talking about Messiah here? Well, we have the rest of Psalm 110 to show us. This is a messianic psalm. Verse 1, God himself is inviting this person, whoever he is, to sit at his right hand. Well, where is God's right hand? Well, it's in heaven. So this person will be in heaven and still ruling somehow. And God himself is going to put all of this person's enemies under his footstool. And that's, that's uh, very violent language. When you think of Joshua, and they, they go into the land, and they're conquering people, and Joshua's crushing heads with his foot. He stands on the, the, the king's heads. That's what is happening here. God is putting the enemies of Messiah underneath Messiah's feet. In verse 2, this king is said to be sent from the Lord God, from Yahweh, to rule in the midst of his enemies. So he rules from God's right hand in heaven, and he's also sent to earth. In verse 3, the people in holy garments, that, that means the people have been washed. Those holy garments, that's a, that is sanctifying language. They have been washed. They've been purified. These sanctified people, whoever they are, presumably Messiah's kingly citizens, they will willfully and joyfully follow their king. So you have an element of the people being made holy and joyful submission to the king. And then in the second part of verse 3, we see that the king is eternally youthful. And he doesn't age. 
That's what this, this flowery, poetic language means. The dew of your youth will be yours. The, the dew of the morning is that fresh, sweet part of the morning before the sun heats up. We know this one here well. And it scorches everything. For this king, his entire life will be that's the sweetness of the dew in the morning. He won't age. He won't, he won't get wrinkly from the, from the sun's rays in the afternoon. He will always be morning time, king. The bright morning star. He, he's always going to be a vibrant king, eternally. In verse 4, the king isn't just a king, is he? Verse 4 says he's also a priest. Temporarily? No, always, forever. He will always be a priest, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And if you want to know what that means, read Hebrews. The book of Hebrews tells us that this means the priest king will forever intercede before God for his people. And that's exactly what David means by this as well. David, we, we know from studying David in First and Second Samuel, he, David is a priest. He's a king. But David knows He's not going to live forever. David will not always be interceding for his people. David knows he's going to the grave. He will cease to be a priest. He will cease to be a king. But he also knows that that, prom he knows that promise that God gave him. God promised him there would be one after him, his own offspring, who would rule on his throne forever. And David's saying here, that person will be a priest and a king. And then in verse 5, all the way to the end of the passage, David, led by the Spirit, teaches that this ruler will be victorious. He's, he's a warrior. He is judge. And he will continue to battle all the way to the end until victory is won. That's what, that's what this, again, more poetry here. When he says, he stops for water, or the, uh, the, he will uh, drink from the brook by the way. What that means is he's pursuing his enemies, chasing his enemies, and his enemies are hightailing it away from him. And because he knows he has forever to catch them, he stops by the brook, drinks some water, takes his time, and then he keeps going. He doesn't turn back until the enemy is conquered. So whoever this song is about, it's about an eternal king, who purifies his own people, and he intercedes for the people with God, and he conquers his enemies, every last one. And when you combine this with all that the prophets will go on to say about this future king, the only way you can possibly understand Psalm 110 is to say, this has got to be Messiah. It cannot be anyone else. And so that's why Jesus asked this question. He knows that they know Psalm 110 is about Messiah. He asked this question in verse 45. How then can this Messiah be David's Lord if he's also his son? This would be unheard of. Sons do not take the throne until the father dies. And yet, yet David's already calling this person his Lord. This person already exists while David's writing. See that, the pre-existence of the son? Right here, Psalm 110. Even while David is still living, he's praising this person as his Lord. And on top of that, remember, 
Just remember who David was. He's the greatest king that the nation of Israel has ever known. Ever. Who in the world would David, greatest king ever, be calling Lord? He doesn't serve anyone. He doesn't serve anyone but God. This is a difficult, tricky psalm for the Pharisees. Unless Messiah is more than David's son. And then it's not tricky at all. And Jesus knows that they have a difficulty with this one, and that's why he points the Pharisees to this psalm. So who is the Messiah? Whose son is he? And nobody there knows the answer. Matthew tells us in verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word. They can't. They're unable to. This is the end of their training. They, 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 with all of their own presuppositions, with all of their proof texts, with all of their understanding about who Christ is, this doesn't fit. So they don't have an answer. They cannot answer him. And what's ironic is this is probably the most obviously messianic passage in the Old Testament. And they're silenced. And they dare not ask him any more questions. I mean, how could they? What is left to ask? All of their trying to, to prove that Jesus is not the Messiah, they failed over and over again. Every question they've asked him, he has satisfactorily answered. They don't want him to be the Messiah, but they can't, they can't prove he's not. There's nothing else they can ask him. They're at the end of the rope. What's left to say? He has made the blind to see. He has made the lame to walk. He has given hearing to the deaf. He has given a voice to the mute. He has cast out demons. He's walked on water. He's silenced the wind and the waves. He's raised the dead. He's fed the multitudes. He has forgiven sin. He's declared a man's sin to be forgiven. Nobody does that. He's healed the paralyzed. He's healed every sort of disease. Everything he has taught from the very beginning of his ministry, everything he's ever said shows his absolute mastery of God's word. And add to all of that, he's actually a descendant of David. He's a son of David. And the Pharisees would know this. They kept very good records. They would know where he came from. Remember, he had to go to Bethlehem because he was in order to be born for the census because he was a son of David. He's a descendant of David. So either now we're at that point, either they have to, to say, yes, he's the Messiah or no, he's not the Messiah. And if he isn't the Messiah, then they have to show it because Jesus has got the resume. And if he is the Messiah, then what Jesus is hinting here is that Messiah is, of course, the son of David, but he's more. So Jesus is saying, I am more. Psalm 110 says he's got to be more than a descendant of David. As Messiah, he's got to be more than just a human king. And this is a very pivotal moment in history. Will the Pharisees believe 
will they receive their king that God has sent to them. They have no argument left. They don't want to be made fools in front of everyone. So will they believe? Or will they continue to harden their hearts against him? Well, we know what happens. Their hearts are as hard as stone. We'll see in chapter 23, Jesus sees this and he pronounces seven woes over them. Absolute, total judgment. Their hearts are as hard as stone. They do not believe because they cannot believe because they do not want to believe. The only thing that they know to do now is just, we have to get rid of him. And that's what they do. In just a matter of days, they're going to have this Jesus killed. The only way, the only argument that they have left to prove that Jesus is not the Messiah is to kill him. But their efforts, we know this, will have the opposite effect. Rather than prove Jesus isn't the Messiah, the son of David, by killing him, Jesus is going to be raised from the dead and proves, oh, yes, he is the Messiah, son of David, and also son of God. Jesus fulfills Psalm 110. By his resurrection, he shows us why David calls him Lord. Because he is Lord. He is the Son of God. And this is, friends, this is so important to to who we are as Christians. This is so important to Christianity. So absolutely vital to what we believe. And we see this in the very first sermon ever preached after the resurrection. This same passage, Psalm 110, is referred to in proving Jesus is the Christ. He is Lord. Peter, on Pentecost, Filled with the Spirit, speaking of Psalm 110, he says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 34. It says, David did not ascend into the heavens, which is to say David could not have been sitting at God's right hand. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This was absolute proof. And look, look at how confident Peter is in verse 36. He's so confident, he's so bold, there's no doubt in his mind as to what the resurrection of Jesus means. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, Psalm 110, Lord, Lord said to my Lord, and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. How can they possibly know for certain? Because when they crucified him, he was raised. This is vital to Christianity. Look look at how the, the book of Romans starts. And Romans, easily one of the richest, most foundational theological books of the New Testament. I was saved reading this book. Romans begins this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, it gets better. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, whose son? God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. There's the son of David. 
He's saying there, Jesus is descended from David. He is, as a human, a son of David. He has the the bona fides to be the Christ. But look at verse 4. And was declared to be son of God. In power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Did you see those together? My Lord said to my Lord, how is it? that the spirit of holiness declares Jesus to be the Son of God. Why is Jesus the Christ also Lord? Again, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 teaches us of a divine Messiah. Messiah is not just the Son of David. He is the Son of God. And again, how how does one prove that? I asked you at the beginning, If Jesus were to be God, how would he prove it? And he couldn't with just a statement, could he? How does one prove himself to be the Son of God? Well, if Jesus, as the Christ, is going to claim to be God, he must be raised from the dead. That's why all of Christianity depends on the resurrection. All of it. Think about the name of our religion, Christ. Christ, Christianity. Christ is there at the root of it all. Jesus was showing that he was the Christ. And he was going to accomplish all that the Christ was prophesied to do. And then he was killed. Now, if he isn't the Christ, then when he's killed, he stays in the grave. Because that's what good non-Christs do. They stay in the grave. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He can't can't restore all things as the Christ was supposed to do if he's dead. But he's not dead. He was raised. And if he was raised, then there must be something about this Jesus. He said he was the Christ. He said he was the son of David. And then he was raised from the dead to show he's also the son of God. That's Christianity. The question is do you believe it? Because listen, if you accept the resurrection, and most of you are here on Easter Sunday celebrating with us the resurrection, then along with that, along with that truth, comes the fact that Jesus is king. Jesus is God. Jesus is sovereign Lord over all. And God is putting all things under his feet. God is bringing all things into subjection to this king. That all things, you and me too. If you believe the resurrection to be true, then Jesus must be Lord over every aspect of your life. Because he is the Christ. He's proven himself to be the Christ. That means he's got to be Lord over your work. He's got to be a Lord over your home, over your money, your house, your family, your relationships, your bedroom, the movies you watch, the websites you visit. He must be Lord over your thoughts. He must be Lord over your emotions. Every single aspect of who you are and who I am must be in subjection to the one who rose from the dead because he's the Christ. All that you do, All of who you are must be for his glory because of who he proved himself to be. To say this, to say, yes, I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. I like like Easter. I like Easter eggs. 
I celebrate Easter. But then to deny, to deny him sovereign lordship over your entire life, that's a contradiction. You can't have both. Jesus can't be raised from the dead and not be your Lord. To be a Christian, listen, I think we confuse this sometimes because of our softness as Christians. But to be a Christian is not just to receive forgiveness for our sins. Jesus didn't die just so you could be forgiven. He died and brought forgiveness to us as a cleansing that qualifies us for his kingdom. And in the kingdom, we live under the rule of the king. Listen to this. There's no such thing as someone who is forgiven by Christ's work, but does not serve Christ as king. There's no such person. No such person. If you won't submit to him as king, you have two options. Either this, deny the resurrection. Because that's what your life is showing anyway. Deny the resurrection. Repudiate the entire New Testament. Don't say you believe it. Just stop. So deny the resurrection. Or you just need to admit this on the other hand. Yes, he rose from the dead. Yes, he proved himself to be the Christ. But I am choosing to put myself in his place as Lord. In which case, what are you doing? You're simply outright admitting You are his enemy. So which is it? Did he rise from the dead? Yes. Submit to him as king. Friend, don't become a footstool. Christ is inviting you to share in his inheritance. He's inviting you into his kingdom to share in his reign over all things. So receive him as king. Share with us in the joy of of serving him. He's not a tyrant. He died for you. There's joy in serving him. There is joy being at his feet, beside his feet, not under them. Let's pray.